As Chair of Inigard, I'm delighted to welcome you to the International Virtual Conference, The World of Work, The Great Reset. We have six fantastic sessions with participants and speakers from across the globe. Uh, you're very welcome to this session. For those that don't know, is an international employment law network across 14 countries. I really do hope that you enjoy the next session and please feel free to participate in the networking sessions afterwards. Thanks very much. Um, and welcome to our session on cybersecurity monitoring and remote working. I'm Pierre Sanchez and I'm an employment lawyer from London-based law firm CM Murray and I'm delighted to chair this panel. And we have two excellent speakers who will give us their insights from an in-house perspective. So starting with Sheridan Mather, who's from Global Bank BBVA. Sheridan will be sharing his expertise as Head of Talent and Culture for Europe. Thank you for joining us from the Cotswolds in England. And we have Chris Van Steindel, who is Director of Cybersecurity for the medical company Johnson & Johnson's, who joins us from the US. And to share their employment law expertise, we have two excellent lawyers, Nadine Sachs, who is a partner at the Canadian firm Hicks Morley, joining us from Toronto, who specializes on the whole range of employment law, including employment standards, human rights, accommodations, and health and safety. Stefan Potters from our Inangard German member firm sites. Stefan joins us um, and is an expert on employment law and data protection, including the legal challenges on digitalization. So with this expert panel, I'm going to start by just introducing some statistics um, that I found while I was researching this topic in preparation. So according to the UK Office for National Statistics, around a third of workers currently are based at home. This figure is similar in the US, where around 33% of workers are working remotely. 25% uh, of those surveyed were sometimes, 41% never, and about two thirds want to continue to work remotely post-pandemic. Now, that obviously brings up some important issues for organizations on how to ensure that systems are safe and how to keep data safe. And according to Info Security Magazine, um, in an article published, on the 15th of March, so only last week, they quote a YouGov survey uh, that suggests that a quarter of UK workers allow children to use their corporate devices for homeschooling. The uses of corporate devices included gaming and around 70% of respondents admitted to using their work devices to access their personal social media. Um, of those surveyed, just under half, so 48% said that they regularly accessed work emails on non-work devices. And I think this, one, this statistic is one that will ring true for a lot of us. Some of us are probably not as careful with our passwords as we should be. Around 74% admitted to using the same uh, password uh, for absolutely everything. Now, 
the BBC reported that with all this homeworking in a survey that they quoted, around one in five homeworkers has received no training on cyber security at all. So I'd like to start um, this panel by asking Chris to comment on these statistics and how much of a threat does using corporate devices for purposes other than work pose for an organization? Yeah, thanks, Pete. It, it, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, so I, I think there's, you know, there's certainly some, some risk, um, you know, generally speaking, of, of using work equipment for, for home use. Um, you know, although maybe outside of the, the kind of industrial and, and shop floor environment, I mean, typically, you know, corporate, you know, fleets of laptops and devices tend to be more hardened. They have more, you know, of the kind of preventive, you know, controls and, and, and protections. They have more of the detective sensing to see if something goes wrong. So, so you know, outside of, I mean, there's always risk outside of, you know, uh, 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 employees being able to install software, which which really they shouldn't shouldn't be able to. Um, I think there's probably more risk in the latter part of uh, of what you mentioned, which is you know people really using home applications and communication channels for work purposes, right? You know, uh, and and also absolutely, you know, sharing passwords, using common logins across. Uh, home and 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 work is. I think that that that's really where the really where the, the the risk is. You know, especially you know when we think about working from home. If we're even you know having you know hard copies of of sensitive data that we're printing, we've got stuff on USB sticks lying around, um, and, and then you know using unapproved cloud uh, 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 and collaboration tools. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that that's that's probably where the the, the majority of the risk lies. What what should employers be doing about this in terms of um, addressing these issues? Should they just accept that this is going to happen and that employees are going to do it, or should they take a stricter approach? Um, Chris, yeah, it, it's so, so. I think it has to be multi multifaceted, right? So, so so you know, training and awareness is 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 important, right? You know, you raised that statistic that that. A lot of people don't have the training, but but I think it, even beyond, you know, training, it, a lot of it starts with the culture and, and the tone with the top from from the board, right? You know, um, and, and leadership is really key for a couple of reasons, right? So, so, so first of all, you know, uh, um, I think you know security needs to be kind of like a culture, kind of like safety, right? It's that's very much that kind of see something, say something. You know, everybody has an accountability in their role, but also. You know, we, we need to enable people to do the right thing, right, and, and behave. And, and you know, most, most people are just trying to get work done, frankly, right. You know, people are not, you know, malicious for the most part. Um, you know, you always, there's always the, the the bad apple, but you know, people are trying to get work done. And so, I think it's important that you know we provide staff with the the, the tools that they can collaborate with, right? You know, uh, uh, securely. And so that requires funding. And, and the other reason that 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 leadership support is important is. Is because you know quite often it, the adoption of those kind of tools is, is an organizational change management cha challenge, right? And, and you kind of need the air cover for the inevitable kind of resistance. You know, people like to do what they like to do, then sometimes they need to change the habits, and that isn't always popular. Maybe there's some, you know, speed bumps or there's some, 
some uh, uh, friction in terms of driving the change and adoption and building those new habits. And again, I think that, that that's why that that leadership is is really important. So so yeah, step one, tone from the top at the board level, right? It's not an IT problem. It's not the security team's problem. This is a business risk that the business leadership needs to own. Um, and then like, you know, beyond that, that, that I think there's, you know, the, the way we talk about it often is, is like, you know, you've got things you can do left of boom and things you can do on the right of boom, right? So so so, so before something bad happens and, and then, you know, if and when it happens. So so on, on, you know, kind of left of boom, like, you know, before issues that, you know, organizations will get a lot of mileage out of, you know, pr pretty much the kind of bread and butter basics, right? So, so know what your crown jewels are in terms of your data and your systems, right? Know um, where that data should be, who should have access to it, you know, limit that access uh, appropriately. Um, you know, things like patching, right? You know, uh, you know, just basic updates to software in, in a work from home environment, how, how is that happening, right? If, if, if patches are typically deployed when uh, uh, people's laptops, for example, are connected to the enterprise network, how is that gonna happen in a work from home uh, uh, mode? Um, you know, not having admin rights to the, 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 the machines. Second factor, is, is, is again, you know, a second factor of authentication. So, you know, when you log in, you've got your password, but you might also have mobile device that gives you a code, you know, that, that, that challenge you, uh, make sure it's really you, you know, that can be helpful if, if people are logging in from different places, you know, because they're not in the office. And, and that's a good example of one, a great protection, but the kind of thing that, that, that hits that kind of habit forming and, and those kind of changes, right? So, so, so these are just examples that there's more to do. And then the other thing on, on kind of right of boom, right, is, is the organization really ready? Do they know what the plan is if and when something goes wrong, right? You know, is, does the, has the team drilled the scenario? Do they know, um, you know, is data being backed up in the work from home situation, right? Can they recover their systems? Are people available if, if, if everybody's remote? You know, if, if you get ransomware, have you made a decision as an organization on, you know, where, where the ethically you would want to pay a ransom knowing that it's going to, you know, fund organized Chris, crime or whatever. And I, and I wonder if on ransomware, you could just, just give us in a minute or two the kind of common sort of cyber kind of scams that you have seen kind of emerge in the in the last in the last year and what you know what to watch out for yeah so, so lots of i mean you know they'll, they'll always use whatever's a hot button topic right as, as, a, as a as a lure um so covid related items you know clearly there you know now it's vaccine related stuff um, but also uh, uh, company help desk scams, right? So, you know, hey, you know, I'm from your company help desk. I'm here to help you. You know, I need you to give me access to your passwords or access to your machine or click on this link, please, right? So, so those are the kinds of common common scams and lures that, that, that you know, are very prevalent in, in the current environment. Thanks. Thanks very much, Chris. Um, lots of things to think about there. And then Sheridan, I'd like to move on to you with your HR hat on. Um, any measures or how you have approached, you know, how you communicate the risks of a cyber attack and data protection to, to your staff? Hi, thank you, Pierre. <clears throat> I mean, I think this goes back pre, obviously, the changes we faced over the last 12 months pre-COVID. I mean, um, awareness has been there for many, many years. Um, we're fortunate to be part of an organisation that is, is fairly large globally, and we do have quite a strong 
infrastructure and we do have um, dedicated teams that do look into this and therefore um, we we do give employees specific training um, and I would say what I have noticed over recent months are more uh, reminders being sent to us about phishing and cybercrime and passwords and what you should be doing um, <clears throat> so I think from from a corporate perspective um, I think it's a mix of things isn't it you the, the exit from the office to home was so sudden that um, it, it wasn't pre-planned. So it wasn't something we, we drilled down before and knew how we would react in those scenarios. It, it literally just happened. And we were very focused at the time to make sure that we could have employees up and running from home um, using corporate tools and materials. Um, and then obviously there are regulatory and other pressures on top to ensure that you're conducting your business in the way that is appropriate under those conditions. So I would say it's been a very challenging time. We've been, we've been lucky touchwood so far um, from um, a cybersecurity perspective, um, not to have unearthed any issues to date. Um, and also there, there are those issues with GDPR um, and data protection in terms of you've, you've got households where potentially there are multiple people working from home. So this is not just um, <coughs> couples and families stuck at home. This is often uh, junior members of staff that do house share with other people, um, all in similar industries and sharing very small, tight spaces. Um, and therefore, it's, it's ensuring that people aren't printing things off, leaving things around, that certain conversations where, where possible are being held as privately as they can be. Um, also, recording of devices uh, for some industries like ours and ensuring that um, we're, we're in a position to be able to meet those regulatory obligations. And I suppose you can, you know, as an employer, it's the, the issue of monitoring is quite difficult and in a sense the the one of the ways to to approach employees and to ensure that they know all the rules and the protocols is to sort of restate and restate and to keep those um your policies um, and what the rules are in terms of monitoring and ensuring compliance um i wondered um from Stefan's point of view, so in Germany, um, what employers are doing to ensure that their employees working from home comply with policies to secure data and, and the like? Well, a lot of aspects have already been mentioned um, by Chris and Sheridan, um, because when it comes to compliance with the GDPR, you have uh, technical and organizational measures that need to be in place. And a lot of um, aspects um, that in particular Chris described are technical measures. Huh? So um, you need to restrict uh, the use of um, private devices. Uh, you should have standard solutions for hardware and software. Um, you should have processes and policies in place uh, in case something goes wrong, which would be a data breach policy, um, which doesn't only have um, this technical dimension of dealing with the IT security breach, but also has a legal dimension of uh, probably notifying um, the supervisory authorities. So all those policies um, 
should be reviewed and adapted to the new situation where, where a lot of um, people work from home or from anywhere else. Um, and in particular, um, now that we know uh, that the pandemic <laughs> actually wasn't over after just a couple of weeks. And also, I think um, it is fair to say that at least most of our clients will um, keep some of the flexible um, models they were forced uh, to install um, uh, by the um, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, maybe not uh, to the same amount, but uh, much more than um, before COVID, uh, definitely. Um, so this definitely, after the first hectic uh, situation, um, led a lot of clients to us to, to, to rethink some of their data protection and IT security policies. And um, of course, it doesn't suffice to just uh, change the policy and notify nobody about it. Uh, you have to roll it out properly, raise awareness, uh, not only by attaching a 100 pages policy, but also by explaining it. Uh, yeah, currently with e-learning sessions, um, having emails, uh, raising particular issues, maybe even targeted to specific departments in the HR department. Maybe you can focus, for example, on data protection in the recruiting process, in um, the procurement departing. You can highlight some data protection issues when it comes to contractual arrangements with, with suppliers, etc. Etc. So, all those things uh, need to be refined, reevaluated, and then um, you need to raise awareness um, uh, with the people you're working it, and f you want uh, to respect those uh, policies. Huh? So, basically, um, the general measures uh, you apply um, when 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 implementing a new uh, corporate policy. Um, and and Nadine, I I wonder just from obviously we've talked a lot about cybersecurity and and monitoring and but on the wider monitoring of employees and just general management, we um, we discussed in our planning call some of the tricky areas of sort of managing employees and monitoring, and and you raised the issue of um, performance. So I wondered how you know what you had seen in Canada and what the kind of trends have been. Uh, from your point of view? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it really varies based on the industry. So, um, you know, some of my clients have systems in place where every minute of the day is tracked for their employees, whether they're working in the office or not uh, through computer systems. And that, I think, was a lot easier to transition to a remote work environment in terms of monitoring um, output and actual productivity throughout the day. Um, but that obviously doesn't work for most types of jobs um, and that's not in place for most jobs so uh, beyond that you know there's various things that people have done um, I've seen employers do check-ins you know at the beginning of the day perhaps a wrap-up check-in at the end of the day to get a sense of what was accomplished throughout the day what the employees are working on um, a number of my clients use Microsoft Teams or other chat functions so that they have kind of a constant um, ability to to chat and communicate throughout the day uh, as things come up um, one thing that we found quite helpful is having some kind of a remote work agreement that is set out in writing in terms of what the expectations are now that you're working from home. I mean, when are you expected to be on your computer? When are you expected to take calls? How available are you expected to be and that sort of thing? Uh, and that can really help set those expectations so that when someone's not meeting them, you actually can take steps to address it. Um, so in that regard, I mean, 
I've seen employers put in place performance improvement plans and kind of set very uh, specific measured goals um, and and requirements for the employees to achieve if they're if they're simply not meeting standards. But I will sort of kind of candidly note that at least for the first six months of the pandemic, I think most people weren't taking many steps, if any, to address performance. I think there was sort of an expectation that people are dealing with a lot. This has been thrown on us um, without any notice. People are juggling childcare responsibilities and, you know, perhaps elder care for uh, for parents who are in long-term care and things like that. So um, I think there was a lot more understanding and flexibility. Now that we're, you know, a year later, I, I think employers are getting a bit more um, alive to the performance issue. And, and if employees really are not performing to expectations, they are taking more steps to address it. But but as I said, they, they're being a bit cautious because of that concern that perhaps this is related to what we would call, you know, a protected ground or, or because they're part of a disadvantaged group. So is it because they're they're suffering from mental health issues or they're juggling childcare responsibilities and that's leading to the performance issues. So um, at least from what I've seen, it, it's engaging more in a conversation before actually going down the road of uh, trying to take more formal steps to manage performance. Yeah, I think it. I think it's a it's a real tricky issue, isn't it? Sort of keeping in touch, monitoring, because on the one hand, you know, we're all working from home. You can see people's homes. You can see my home. Um, it's quite intrusive. So, do you just pick up the phone and call people when you need them, or do you, um, you know, do you have to make an appointment in a normal office environment? You would just go to your colleague and talk to them and ask them a question. But things seem they they take some adjustment. Um, and Sheridan, I remember during our, our planning calls that you mentioned um, you had an initiative to to, to try and keep uh, one of your teams um, in touch. Perhaps you'd like to talk about that, the video rolling um, to maintain team culture, which I thought was quite interesting. I think that, that was something that just naturally evolved because of the nature of how the team works. So this wasn't us as an organisation saying imposing this because... I, I would imagine if that was something we tried to impose and people weren't keen on it, we, we could probably find ourselves um, having some issues to deal with. But essentially, um, our sales teams um, throughout the pandemic have been connected throughout the day via video with each other. Um, that for them is something that is key in terms of how they communicate, how they work with their clients, how they work with each other. Um, so this is something that they've chosen to do themselves to try and recreate where possible um, that feeling of um, being part of the team. Um, so that's an initiative that's been born out of the pandemic naturally by the team. So not something that we've enforced or imposed. And how's that, how do the team feel? I mean, has it, does it recreate, I mean, from a kind of practical level, is it quite helpful? Because I can see there have been times when I want to speak to a colleague and I have, you know, they're in meetings and you, because you don't see them, you don't, you know, you don't, you wouldn't necessarily have access to their diaries to know when they're free. No, no. How does it? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is quite intrusive. Um, I'm not connected all day to my team, um, but, but that was their choice. Um, and I think for, for certain types of roles, it can help. Um, and I think for them, they certainly miss the office, um, as many of us do. Um, and I think we're, we're certainly seeing that some roles actually function well working from home. 
under these circumstances. Other ones um, would function better working from the office, especially teams like that. So actually accept um, being connected throughout the day, I think reflects the importance that they see in being so connected, um, whereas other teams can work more independently. That's quite interesting. Stefan, I don't know if you want to comment from so with your data protection hat and from a German employment law perspective on that initiative yeah, that Sheridan mentioned. Let's say from a German perspective, it's an interesting initiative. Uh, it's more or less unthinkable here, I'd say. <laughs> Um, like Chris said, it wasn't imposed on everybody, but uh, then again, um, whether you can really freely consent in such a situation um, is another question. And I think without consent, uh, it would be very uh, difficult to find a legal basis uh, under the GDPR uh, for something like that, because it leads to a kind of like non-stop surveillance situation, more or less, so uh, probably disproportionate. Um, and uh, also, um, if you want to 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 uh, have something like this uh, on a really binding basis, uh, you would need to introduce some sort of policy and, and, and also regulate the, the IT tools um, you use uh, for creating such a situation. And this both would be subject to co-determination in Germany. So the Works Council would have a say. And uh, definitely there's no way uh, you can get the Works Council to agree on something like that. So I think for Germany, it's, it's it's really a, a hypothetical uh, question whether something like this uh, could work. Um, and I think uh, in general, people also, the employees are, are, are rather sensitive uh, when it comes to, to uh, privacy issues. So from a managing uh, perspective, you would also have a lot of difficulties, not, not legal remarks, really more political remark or remark regarding um, uh, management issues. Uh, it would be really tough uh, from a managerial point of view um, uh, to, to, to really enforce something like this. So. Um, I'd say in Germany, uh, the whole mobile work has really led to a situation um, where um, management was more or less forced to focus more on, on, on results uh, than, than, than controlling people. So this is, uh, for example, the way they can monitor uh, their employees now. Um, not only really um, the content of working, but also uh, simple aspects like working time. A lot of our um, employees, uh, uh, a lot of our clients um, implemented trust-based uh, trust based, um, working time uh, monitoring uh, models uh, for mobile work. Also for those uh, employees who usually, when uh, they are not working um, uh, at the home office, but regular working hours at the office uh, need really uh, to, to register in, register out every day um, through some sort of software stamping system, whatever you want to call it. Um, so for those people who are usually strictly monitored in, in their daily working hours, even for them, uh, a lot of um, um, companies in Germany introduced yeah, trust-based uh, models when it comes to um, monitoring working time. Um, Nadine, has this um, been your experience? Do you find employers to be more trusting that we're working from home? Because uh, prior to this, obviously, remote working for many organizations was a big kind of no-no. And I suppose now we have been forced um, 
we have been all forced to do it around the globe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they, they've had to. Um, and, and I've also seen certainly more flexibility in terms of hours of work. Again, um, I think probably going back to my other comments about the acknowledgement that many employees are juggling a lot more things right now with, you know, particularly when we had schools closed um, and, and things like that. We actually, uh, interestingly, in our labor arbitration bar, all of the labor arbitrators put out a statement uh, saying that before every hearing, they would ask council and participants whether they needed specific break times um, or, or starting or ending times to coincide with breaks with virtual school and things like that. So there's, there's definitely an acceptance that uh, people are dealing with that throughout the day. And, uh, you know, if they get their work done, it, it doesn't really matter when they do it, uh, as long as it's as long as it's done and, and the emails may come in at all hours of the day. Um, the, the challenge that I think uh, some employers have had is compliance with our um, hours of work legislation and overtime. And it doesn't apply to everyone. You know, it, many are exempt if they're over a certain level, but for those who are not exempt in exempt positions, um, there's uh, effectively employees are entitled to overtime pay if they've worked those hours, regardless of whether they've been assigned or directed to do so. So there's, again, this, this problem with trust that you may at some point down the line have an employee come forward with a record of all these hours worked that you really didn't know about um, and an employer may uh, not have any evidence in, uh, in defense of, of saying that they actually didn't work those hours. So, um, you know, I think we're certainly seeing that, but I, it raises a host of, of potential issues and uh, potential liability as well. Um, and then on remote working, obviously you mentioned Nadine that working you know as long as a job gets done so greater flexibility but I was sort of wondering how far that flexibility could extend to and Chris I'm gonna ask you now so lots of employees have been working remotely as in abroad, abroad remotely so not in their home countries either because they're not originally from that country or because their families live in other countries and they didn't want to be on their own and I just wondered, from a cybersecurity sort of point of view, how, mu how much does working, you know, not perhaps not telling your employer or working for extended periods in other countries poses for an organization? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I think, I mean, you know, obviously outside of, you know, the, the, the kind of hotspots that we could all probably imagine in terms of, you know, kind of like nation state based kind of hacking and, and, and data concerns. I'm not sure that the, the, the geographical location is is more risky per se. I mean, you know, in China, certainly there's, you know, they have a cybersecurity law that, that's very specific about, you know, what data, um, you know, kind of resides in, in that jurisdiction. But I think for, for me that the, you know, that the, 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 the problem is probably more around just spotting what abnormal behavior looks like, right? If you've got people, you know, logging in from from lots of different places, lots of different devices. You know, I'm sure we can all uh, uh, relate to different times of day as well, right? And then we've talked it talked it here. You know, that, that those patterns of what normal behavior looks like become much more diffused, and so it's hard to spot. You know, the abnormal that may represent something malicious or, or something unusual that we'd want to kind of uh, 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 drill into. And. Thank you, Chris. That's quite interesting. Well, that's a that's a relief. I suppose it's important for employers to kind of spot the patterns of, you know, if they're logging, people are logging in and at two, three in the morning. Um, and Sheridan, I wondered how you had dealt with this. Obviously, as a bank in the UK, there are very strict regulatory requirements. 
Um, and at the beginning of the pandemic, lots of people went to other countries. Um, and I wondered how what the approach of the bank had been um, to those employees. No, no, very valid and interesting topic here. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I, I would say that we were very focused on um, how to adapt and ensure that we had continuity of business and things were not impacted. So our focus very much was on infrastructure and getting people home. Um, and early on, we started to get requests from some people saying, look, um, we have no family here. We're worried. We're scared. Um, we would like to go back home. And at that point, we didn't know whether this was going to last a month, two months, three months. We weren't really thinking 12 to 18 months down the line. Um, and at that stage, we were very clear with them that, look, um, if you choose to go, um, it's, it's against the advice of the government, local authorities, and the World Health Organization, and, and ourselves in terms of moving, to, moving countries and traveling at a time of pandemic into potentially a hotter zone than you're leaving. Um, we can't recommend it, but equally, if you choose to go, then these are the conditions that you must come back within a specified period upon requested to return to your normal place of work. Um, we took a decision coming into the summer that those allowances that we had made had to end because evidently this was going to go on for longer than an anticipated. Um, and we formally wrote to all employees to say, look, if you are currently out of the country, you must return by X dates. Um, and the allowances enabling you to work outside of your home country, your working country, um, are, are now over. Um, there, there are many, because by then we had time to really look into the um, potential issues that could arise. And you've got things like permanent establishment. Um, you have uh, issues like um, tax. Tax purposes. Exactly. Um, and therefore, we were quite clear. Um, so that, that's how we've dealt with it. And Nadine, I wondered, has this been much of an issue in, in, in Canada, you know, in terms of people requesting employers to kind of work, you know, saying we're all working from home now. Why should it make a difference geographically where I am? Yeah, we, we've definitely seen it. Um, I mean, I think similar to what Sheridan was saying at the beginning, it was more on a temporary basis. And on a temporary basis, it didn't necessarily invite as many potential legal risks or concerns. Um, for, for most of those issues, you know, we would say, well, the, the kind of the home legislation um, and everything governing employment would, would typically still apply if it's only for a short period of time. But now we're seeing more requests to move either out of province, so to a different province across Canada, or out of country on a on a more permanent basis. And even, I mean, across Canada, every province has their own employment standards legislation. They have their own health and safety legislation. They have their own workers' compensation system. And so once an employee moves to one of those provinces and sets up their uh, that as their home location, and that's where they're working from, then those different pieces of legislation arguably would apply to them. Or in some cases, there could be dual jurisdiction between the, the two provinces. Um, so it becomes a lot more challenging for an employer to figure out what they need to comply with, whereas typically they would only be looking at the the laws that govern the location where their office is. Uh, 
is in compliance with that. If someone moves to different provinces, they now have to um, review and ensure compliance with a number of different pieces of legislation. So um, at least in my experience, I think most employers are saying that that's not allowed for uh, for a long period of time because of that issue. And it just uh, it invites so many more um, potential risks and uh, things that they need to need to consider. And Stefan, I wonder, with Europe being a lot smaller, whether this um, has been something that your clients have, have encountered? Um, yes, definitely. Uh, traveling uh, was an issue, uh, in particular also um, in the first phase uh, of the pandemics. Um, generally, just like Canada, Germany is a federal state, so everything can differ from state to state. Um, but when it comes to traveling, uh, there's uh, one service of uh, the foreign ministry. They issue kind of um, formal travel advice or travel warnings. And most of the employers said, look, whenever there's a formal warning to enter this or that country and you did it nonetheless, um, then the employee um, uh, we'll have to bear all the risks involved with it and in particular also the risk not being able to work when returning because of quarantine measures, for example. Uh, and then we will not pay the normal salary because it was kind of like self-induced um, that this risk materialized. And this is uh, the line of distinction a lot of uh, companies drew, at least at a, at a later stage. Um, at the beginning where everything um, developed, um, uh, very fast, uh, in, in particular in Italy, uh, Italy uh, and Austria, um, maybe were the two countries which were hit really hard in the first wave uh, at the very beginning. And those are typical skiing destinations, especially in, 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 in March and April. Um, uh, so to say, um, yeah, th this definitely posed a problem, but a lot of people weren't aware of this before and uh, there was no official warning at the beginning. Um, so um, in those cases, uh, most of the employers uh, just uh, just tolerated uh, the quarantine measures, etc., and paid the salary nonetheless. Really, you could say um, the first big wave to Germany of COVID cases was brought uh, to Germany by skiing tourism, uh, namely from Ischgl. That's kind of like uh, the Las Vegas of the Alps, a lot of party going on there. And uh, there you had massive amount of COVID cases. Uh, one member of our law firm, a couple of his friends had a bachelor party there, 13 guys, and 10 of them got COVID in Ischgl. So... I think that gives everybody a good impression. Well, I had booked a skiing holiday to Ischgl, which got cancelled because of the pandemic, and I'm quite glad it got cancelled yeah. with those statistics. <laughs> <laughs> um, just talking about um, what we've said, I suppose we're not going to end up being digital nomads, as was initially predicted, not. not least. No. We've had a question. We've had a question for the audience, which is Pandora's box, basically, how do you deal with social security and ap applicable employment legislation? The short answer is it's extremely complex and very difficult to answer in a short period of time. But you would need tax specialist tax advisors and employment lawyers to make sure that you comply. I mean, I'm not a tax lawyer, but You'd need to look at things like double taxation treaties, etc. So it is quite complex that would take employers quite quite a lot of time to evaluate before. And we would suggest 
undertaking a careful assessment of what the potential risks are. As Sheridan mentioned, for example, creating a permanent establishment in another country before agreeing to um, a long-term temporary or long-term relocation. Now, I want to move on um, to some of the positive aspects of remote working. And Sheridan, if I can move over to you. So what what do you think, um, having adapted quite rapidly at at the bank, what are are the things that you think you will be keeping for remote working going forwards? I suppose that's probably the question that all our employees and colleagues are asking at the moment. So um, I can't say anything I say is set in stone. I mean, I, I, I would imagine that as a result, we will see considerable change to the way that we work. And I think for most industries, most people are feeling the same from the conversations that I've had. Um, I think we went into sort of February, March last year, Um, as quite a traditional bank um, that has developed and changed a lot over the years. But like many in the industry, there were always going to be certain functions that one believed needed to be done from the office. And I'm I'm talking primarily things like trading for for numerous reasons. And from a regulatory perspective, um, from access to data, speed of access to data, Uh, from a technology and systems perspective. So they weren't things that we would necessarily have considered pre-February, March last year, were things that we could have done from home. Um, And also, I think it's not just the firms that have evolved in the way that they think, but also obviously the regulators in in our case, because they've also had to adapt in terms of what they will allow and their understanding of the infrastructures and the ways that we work. So I think the positives coming out are there's been a huge demand for many years now for more flexibility in working. Um, And I think that's something that will come out of it. Whether we see um, people being able to work one, two or three days a week from home or one week on, one week off, um, the the sense I'm getting from what I read in, in the is a lot of firms will be heading towards a sort of 60-40 split. So 60% in the office, 40% at home. Um, There are benefits to that in terms of costs, reduction in infrastructure, reduction in um, space, office space that we need. Um, So so I think there, there are benefits all around. And I think finding that healthy balance is good. I think people now... A lot of people are quite tired of just seeing the same four walls um, and not interacting in that kind of human physical way. Um, being connected 24 hours a day to your colleagues on the desk may help, but it's it's not quite the same. And Chris, do you think that from a if if we do end up working a kind of 60-40 split? Do you think that organisations will change, will do anything radically different to kind of for cybersecurity in the long term? Yeah, I mean, I, I, from my point of view, I, I think that, you know, the, the pandemic's probably been a net positive in terms of the, the direction it's moved us, right? So, you know, a lot of trends that existed already uh, have accelerated. So, like, you know, specifically the move to the cloud, right? And, and not to say that, you know, kind of having all of your business applications and even even your, your your virtual desktop, right, in in the cloud is you know solves all problems. It's not a silver bullet. It brings in 
challenges of its own but but i do think it you know it helps it helps right you know it, it raises the bar from a security perspective so i think you know accelerating that trend is a net positive i think it's also forced organizations to invest in you know kind of foundational capabilities like remote you know secure remote access like second factor authentication which is a a, a net positive and and then finally, I mean, just in terms of kind of business continuity planning, I know I think Sheridan touched on that earlier. I mean, the, the, the fact that we know now we can operate in this, you know, in this in this environment, you know, we're not tied to the corporate network or to the office. You know, I think that resiliency aspect is, is gives gives us a lot of confidence. So yeah, all in all, I would say it's yeah acceleration of existing trends and and a net positive as a result. Um, are these trends that you're seeing, Nadine? Um... In, in Canada, so are, are we likely to kind of move work, the workforce to be at home a percentage of the time on a permanent basis, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's the million dollar question right now that everyone is trying to, to figure out what, what their future for their business is going to look like. Um, I have certainly seen many clients contemplating um, an increase in, in work from home roles. Um, I think there's, you know, as, as Sheridan mentioned, there's a benefit from a, a cost perspective in terms of office space. Um, a lot of employees have also uh, noticed the benefit of not having to live, you know, downtown, right in a city. Many of them have moved outside of the city, um, which would be arguably a longer commute. But I think a lot of them are saying, you know, I can do this remotely. There's no need for me to be in the office. So um, I'm going to stay out here. And, and my expectation is that I'm going to work remotely all or most of the time so that it makes sense for me. Um, the other thing I just wanted to touch on, which, uh, you know, Sheridan and Chris both said, we now see that this is something we can do. Um, from, a, from a human rights perspective, I actually think that's interesting because we have had many, many employees in the past request work from home accommodations for medical reasons. And um, oftentimes employers will push back on that, say, no, you need to be in the office. You, you can't do this from home, it's not workable. And I just think that response is not gonna work these days. Um, we've all seen that it actually is possible and you're not gonna be able to defend or respond to any of those types of claims by saying that they have to be physically in the office uh, for, for the vast majority of, of roles that have been working from home. There are definitely some interesting issues. I found a, a survey that was conducted by uh, Microsoft that suggested that employees at home are more likely to contact current team members, but less likely to contact new ones. So there's an issue there for team culture. And it'll be interesting to see what initiatives come forward, because let's face it, we're all... Uh, we're all tired of Zoom socials after being at work all day. Um, and the other interesting statistic that I found from the University of Nottingham is that they, the majority of people, so about 2,000 people were surveyed, and the favoured kind of assuming everyone works from Monday to Friday is working three days from the office. So it'll be interesting to see um, what what happens with that and what how that, you know, whether companies like Sheridan mentioned, you know, basically reducing their physical spaces and expensive cities and how that, that plans out. Um, I'd like to move on to just employee uh, well-being generally. And obviously, you know, it varies. It will depend on what job that you do. But I think particularly professional jobs, that whilst we're all working from home, there's been a tendency to perhaps work longer hours. 
Um, and I just wondered, um, Stefan, whether you could comment on some of the employer obligations and what employers, you know, should be doing to look after their employees. Yeah, well, now we're all remote working. Health and safety is a, is a big issue when it comes to remote work. Um, let's say at the beginning of the pandemic, again, um, things were very hectic. And I think the main health and safety requirement was to get people out of the office uh, to ensure um, their health. So, um, but of course, at the end of the day, all of us, uh, we all have desk jobs. Um, so the usual health and safety requirements um, that apply for those jobs are also um, applicable and, and, and have to be uh, complied with um, for remote work. Huh? So definitely um, we need to respect a certain obligation um, when it comes to hardware ergonomics um, and not only talking about um, the laptop and the mouse, I'm also talking about the desk and the chair. Um, and at least in Germany, um, the employer um, has a duty to provide uh, the work equipment. A lot of employers did. They said, yeah, look, we have a couple of spare ergonomic chairs. So if you don't have proper office equipment at home, you're free to grab one or you're free to walk into your office and, and, and borrow <laughs> your normal office chair. And um, then uh, because everybody thought it's, it's just a couple of weeks and now they're really like um, working on elaborate concepts. What are we paying? Um, how can people um, get those um, tools and the hardware, all the material they, they, they need to fulfill? their tasks and um, then you have issues like software ergonomics uh, for example as well in, in particular when you have uh, disabled uh, uh, employees uh, for example for blind employees it's it's, it's quite a challenge uh, to work with some of the standard uh, tools um, so there's definitely a lot of uh, health and safety um, aspects involved um, that that need to be complied with and uh, things are still developing there was a lot of leniency from the supervisory authorities uh, initially um, but this phase is definitely over, I'd say, and, and now they expect compliance with the normal regulatory framework. And it, there are some difficult issues because, for example, I was just thinking about an employer may well say, okay, here's your ergonomic chair mm -hmm. and your ergonomic desk, but if you're working from, you know, a camp table in your bedroom, um, you, and you've got nowhere to put it. It's really quite difficult, isn't it? You just haven't got the space. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of, you know, how if if this, you know, we end up working from home much, much longer and on a permanent basis, depending on how new variants, how how employer how employers will address those issues of space. You know, uh, will employees be be expected to um, have a home office or? You know, will they get allowances for, you know, rent a bigger flat or something like that? Nadine, I don't know if you want to comment on any sort of health and safety issues that have been, you know, that have arisen um, in, in Canada. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have like a legislative requirement, uh, generally speaking, to provide all of the, the, the desk and chair um, from a work from home arrangement. I mean, typically that would be part of the terms of employment that you would, you know, kind of set up at the outset. And uh, in these circumstances, that didn't really happen because everyone was previously working in the office and then went to home. Um, but, I, you know, the similar comments to what Stefan had said in terms of 
if someone has a disability, if someone has special equipment for an accommodation, that would still need to be required. Um, and any workplace injuries that are suffered by an employee working from home would still be covered under our uh, workplace compensation legislation. So employers obviously have an added incentive to provide equipment that's going to protect their employees from those types of injuries. Um, the other thing I was thinking about under this topic as we were preparing that I just wanted to flag is, I don't know if this is the same elsewhere, but Canada does have a mandatory vacation requirement in its legislation. And so that means employees are entitled to the vacation, but employers are also required to ensure that employees take that vacation. And this became a bit of a challenge nearing the end of last year when everyone effectively said, I'm not going to go on my vacation. I want to, you know, I have nowhere to go. So what am I going to do with it? Um, and employers were just mandating employees to take the time off because they needed to comply with their statutory obligations. But I think it also goes to employee well-being, right? I mean, they were ensuring that their employees had that time off um, away from work, even though perhaps they had nowhere to go and nothing to do. Yeah, and I wonder actually on on that whether we will see a different different kind of packages because obviously you know a few years ago there were companies saying you don't you can take as much holiday as you want but now there's nowhere to go and um, people will be less inclined to take holiday and talking about space I wonder whether um, Stefan you um, would like to comment on whether you have seen any initiatives on like employers introducing new benefits or new incentives um sort of adjusting almost to how we've been working and that perhaps you know may ha maybe having more holidays is not that attractive anymore to be honest um in 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 this area we haven't seen many initiatives uh, initiatives um so far it will be interesting um how this develops but uh, when it comes to the bonus schemes, uh, et cetera, um, or holiday, um, you have your contractual obligations. And uh, a lot of it, again, like a lot of things in Germany, are subject to co-determination rights. So you have your applicable collective agreements. And those weren't the collective agreements the employers tackled first. Um, so you cannot just change them and introduce uh, new models um, without negotiating it with the works council so usually there were much more uh, pressing um, issues to deal with like introduction of short-time work it security data protection issues health and safety issues so it will be interesting to see whether we uh, see something uh, some changes in, in in this area in the future i guess um that with when it will stay the way uh, it is, at least to, 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 to a certain percentage, that you will have a bigger portion of the workforce, workforce with a trust-based um, working time models. I, I think also to control results, you will see more um, um, remuneration based on, 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 on results as well um, as, 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 as flexible um, aspect of, of of the remuneration but that's that's just a guess really uh, so far we we haven't really seen this trend materialize great well i think we we've reached the end of our session and i'd like to thank chris nadine sheridan and stefan for being amazing panelists and joining us and sharing your insights uh, please join us for the networking session, which we will have virtual tables so you can come and chat to us. Um, and I hope to see you there. Thank you very much for joining us, everyone. Thanks, Pierre.